This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Boom. Hey, guys. Larry Charles here. We'll have the Game Dev Unchained podcast team. And no, this isn't the podcast yet. This is the hype video for the podcast where we try to get you excited and tell you about what's going to be in the podcast and why you should be listening to this one. And I just doubled up all my future money by listening to this episode because it's all about how companies get invested in in the game industry, especially when you're talking to Mr. Carl Armfeld and the branch of the bank that he represents. Friend, please give him the details because I'm over here scratching lottery tickets. I got to change my strategy, man. So this is uh, quite a shift, right? So Carl represents the Swedish bank. <laughs> I don't know which one. I forgot. Yeah. But we'll find out in the episode, right? Uh, but his company, he represents them, goes out to do a lot of big investment five to ten percent to a lot of companies that you heard of right some of the few that he was mentioned was starbreeze mm. rovio uh funcom take two right you never heard me you might have heard of these guys and we kind of go over like yeah so like what what the differences are with these companies what they look for at that stage right so yeah. we have all types of professional developers listening any developers listening, students listening, this kind of opens the window for what that world looks like, right? When you're one of those CEOs over there and they're constantly hustling, right? So um, just being able to see that end of the spectrum, I think really helps formulate uh, your own ambitions and goals and help you align like what is possible. And it's good to just talk to somebody on the other side. This individual is somebody who is dealing with funding game companies pretty much for his whole job. So he's seen all the pitches. He's seen the small companies, the big companies, the medium-sized companies. And he pretty much just breaks down where the success points are. Uh, And so, I mean, that just alone makes it a can't-miss episode if you're looking at starting a company and getting it funded. So I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. It's like, yeah, you know, a lot of times when we interview developers, we're always talking about making that one success game, uh, successful games, right? And then some episodes we talk about doing a follow-up successful games, right? So Carl Armfeld represent like talking to people who have five or six successful games and are ready to go to the negotiating table and take it to the next step. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really good to also see his perspective because these guys, right, like Carl, are always looking at the trends and data of where our industry is going, not just the companies that they're looking at, to, to stay a step ahead. And they're in it for the long run game, right, where they're investing in companies to last the next 60, 100 years, right? So uh, it's really great to kind of see his perspective on where VR is, which is, is always a hot topic, as well as, you know, the differences between console, PC market, and the mobile market, right? It kind of keep us re- reminded with how many different approaches and, and breeds of game industry companies there are uh when investing in these companies and what they look for so it's really cool yeah so i mean we've already given you a couple of cliff notes but if you want the whole thing just go ahead and listen to the podcast all right 
ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome back to the Game Dev Unchained podcast, the number one podcast for video game development and the lifestyle of game developers. And rolling with his homies when it comes to D6 or D20s, I have with me the co-host, Mr. Brandon Pham. I'm going to pretend I know that reference. This is Brandon <laughs> Pham with my D12s and D6. <laughs> yeah, that, that counts too. You're yeah, that works. With a special guest this week, Carl Armfeld. Did I say that right, Carl? That, that's perfect pronunciation. Right. I'm impressed. Hey, there we go. Get, uh, we're off to a good start. Uh, in this part of the podcast, we usually ask our guest, Carl, uh, a little bit about your background, introduce to our listeners out there who you are, where you're at, where you're heading. Yeah. Of- so basically, um, I'm working for a um, Swedish bank, one of the major banks in Sweden. And right. what I do is that uh, I run some small cap equity funds. So basically what we do is that we focus both on Nordic but also global stocks. Mm-hmm. And we just want to find the most attractive companies to be invested in, in over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and one of the funds I run, it's, uh, it's an innovation fund. And uh, one of the most attractive industries that we have found the last three, four, five years is actually game developers. Hey. So uh, as of it's now, the first time we've been called attractive. <laughs> about uh, actually almost forty percent of that fund is invested in in a, a game developers. Uh, and uh, we go around and meet a lot of them. And uh, one one funny thing is that all the successful ones they have you know quite similar playbook to be honest. Mm-hmm. Is there a range that you guys go for? Um... Triple A, indie, like, or is it specific to to a certain group? I mean, we really like companies that have profitable growth. Mm. So uh, it's more kind of the mid size to to larger uh, games developers. Mm. But but we're quite uh, uh, open minded, and we're you know always we think that the great companies always come from below. Mm. So um, some of the companies will have some smaller titles, so be more kind of indie studio-ish companies. So can you take me through how the bank would say one day, like, you know what would help us diversify is if we got into, you know, technology development, specifically video games. Uh, that's new for me to know that what I would call you know, traditional money, if you like through bank financing and loans that that would show up into the game industry as it is doing now. And I think it's fascinating and wonderful, but who brought that opportunity to your bank? And like, how did that happen? I guess is my question. I mean, it, it was basically us saying that uh, running a tech fund is t- tricky because you have mm. all this technology coming up all the time. So you always have to be on your toes and understand, you know, what, what company will be around in five to 10 years. Mm. And that's really, really hard in tech. But what we started to love about the game developers is, one, they own digital brands. Mm-hmm. And for us, if you have a portfolio of great digital brands, you will be around in 15, 20 years. It doesn't matter what, what technology or console prevails. If you have great uh, digital IP and take care of that, we think that, that that's one of the most attractive business models you can actually have going forward. And the other thing we thought was attractive was actually uh, when some of these uh, game developers went from an analog to a digitally published world, 
we realized that that put a lot of more power in the game developers' hands. So, so the, and the, the second thing we like and think is attractive is when these companies have gone from analog distribution mm-hmm. to digital distribution, gotcha. because it's very different for us, for a company hoping a title would be fantastic and dollars in marketing, and then just push it out to, you know, your local game store. I mean, that's yeah. a very high risk model for us. But when you can make a smaller base game and focus on expansions, Mm-hmm. and constantly interact with your community. I mean, that changes the, the risk-reward perspective, we think, to, to a great deal. Do, do you mind kind of going over, like, a small list of, like, the type of uh, game companies that you guys have invested in, just to give an idea to the listeners out there uh, at, of how large these companies that you guys are looking at? I mean, uh, the biggest position we have now is actually in the Polish company, CD Project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who do the Witcher series? That. Yeah, and uh, to be honest, for me, I mean, going to E3 this year, I think uh, their new title, Cyberpunk, was was probably one of the most exciting things that I saw personally. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest company that we are invested in is actually Take Two. Oh wow! Uh, because we just think they sit on a unique portfolio of IP, mm-hmm. and we think that these guys are actually. A bit more like the smaller companies. I think we think that they they put the community first. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really want to to get everything they can out of the game developers and their studios, and they treat their studios more like a smaller company. So we think out of the really big companies, that is actually our, our favorite company. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And then on the s- smaller side, I mean, the Paradox. We've been involved in yeah. uh, within a couple of years. I mean, and. Uh, they have a really attractive portfolio. I mean, and they have mm-hmm. so many brands, and that's the ideal thing for us. We don't want to live with a game studio where you put all your eggs in one basket, and then if you have one title failing, mm-hmm. you know, the whole, whole company goes belly up. Mm-hmm. So we really want to find a company that's small, treats the community well, but still has three to five titles. Mm-hmm. And ideally, obviously, we love the company who own their own IP. But that's not always easy. And some companies, they have some titles where they own own IP and then they do some license deals. And I mean, a mix is sometimes also attractive. Um, And then uh, we have a Norwegian company, Fancom, which you probably know. And um, the the fun thing with with Fancom is that they kind of changed the business quite a lot last couple of years. They used to do really big titles with four, five, six years development time, which is inherently really risky. Mm-hmm. And now they're doing smaller projects, a bit smaller teams, uh, ideal one to three year projects. Um, and they've also come from a situation where they were just using third party IP, mm-hmm. the situation where they're actually, uh, they're, they're part uh, owner of the Conan brand, which we think is fantastic because then, then you control your own destiny. Yeah. And uh, our last shining star that's really changed a lot, even last year, is a UK company called Frontier Developments. Okay. I mean, and they used to be work for hire, doing titles for other people, and then everything changed with Planet Coaster, mm. uh, yeah, which yeah. is a theme park game. Yeah. Uh, and their latest release is uh, uh, Jurassic. Uh, uh, the park Jurassic title? World Park Builder, yeah. Yes. And uh, we just think that's uh, 
again, it reminds us a lot of Paradox. It reminds us a lot of Funcom. But very focused company. They don't try to do everything. They know what they're good at. But mm -hmm. they want to have three, four, five, six titles and really be, be part of this future consolidation of the industry. They, they want to be one of the larger entertainment giants, which mm -hmm. is you know, a quite bold proposition. But, uh, but they've gotten really far the last two years where we, we've been involved. So who, yeah. who, who exactly approaches this? Uh, first, I'm assuming yeah, who, who finds who? Yeah, how does this work? I mean, the, the good thing is that they, we, we tried to go to the big conferences, yeah. and uh, the best introduction we can get is, is from one of the companies that we have invested in. I mean, they, they know the industry, they know who's really good to, to, to uh, uh, be invested in. So, in terms of finding new great ideas, is actually our companies are best reference. I see. <laughs> But, but some of the companies we just found by looking at the Steam Top 50 list. Oh. And that's how that we found be, Frontier, you know. They, that would be pretty nice. I mean, <laughs> they popped up as the, the only company in the world with the highest ranking on, on Steam Top 50, mm -hmm. but the lowest, lowest market cap. I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. how we found them originally. Yeah. So is the goal long-term to just continue to acquire you know, uh, companies that you find interesting and kind of build up a portfolio of diverse developers? Or is there like a, a bigger plan that you guys might be working on where it might be like movies as well? Is it just gaming? I guess, where is your funds focus in regards to media entertainment? I mean, uh, if you compare the game developers to the movie industry, mm. we just think that when entertainment goes more interactive, mm. um, it's much more interesting to be invested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, uh, I agree, hundred percent. And uh, we just think that people who who spend people will spend more and more time with these digital brands, mm -hmm. where you have interactive entertainment. Uh, and we we just think that the the games industry is so different from the movie industry. Yeah. Uh, but the good thing with our fund is that usually when we invest, we own between five and ten percent of a company. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just think that uh, we really believe in the model where we have small independent companies. We don't think the end goal is to sell your, sell your company mm -hmm. to, to a big competitor. We, mm -hmm. we like the guys who, who go to the stock exchange, who are happy to be a public company, mm -hmm. and, and who want to stay independent. Mm -hmm. But I mean, still, making games is tough. It's a tough industry. So, so even if you are independent, we think you, you have to grow to, to be alive, basically. So you guys got involved with uh, the game industry five last five years, right? In those five years, what what changes? Because I'm I'm assuming you guys study trends all the time. <laughs> what 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 are the biggest changes that you've seen that has happened for the five years? I mean, um, longer life cycles mm -hmm. that pe people keep uh, titles alive for longer thanks to DLC and expansions. Um, it is getting tougher to, to get eyeballs, especially on Steam. I mean, more fragmentation, a lot of indie yeah. studios. I, th I think last two years, there's actually been, you know, kind of a revamp to, to uh, having to use a publisher because it's just so crowded. Um, in the biggest studios, we see a lot more reuse. I mean, look at the title like Assassin's Creed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if people want really high quality, a game developer 10 years down the road, you can't start from a, you know, 
blank sheet of paper. Every that single time. a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, we think that over time, you can't treat your, your customers as customers. You have to think of your customers as a community. And that's one thing that a lot of the smaller studios have been very good at. So the hot topic that a lot of like uh, game industry developers like Larry and I talk about is that you know the, the, these large companies they have of course bigger gains, bigger risk, and uh, you know there's only like the titans left. You, usually, when we're talking about the top ten games that people buy, um, obviously you guys are the guys with the data, right? You see a lot of profitability and longevity to the industry itself um you you mentioned a few points like having these companies multiple titles being able to take the risk because they're not putting all their bet on one particular license or ip what other things do you feel that has helped these companies uh maintain what they have and evolve and, and grow I think uh, digital distribution has really put uh, more power in the hands of game developers. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can make a great game, you can get, always get it out yourself globally. And that, that's not so many industries where you can make a product and just ship it all over the world. Because in any non-digital industry, I mean, you're very dependent on distributors. Uh, you know, you have t- <laughs> trade wars, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it's really a very global industry. So if you can make a great product, I mean, you can uh, you, you, you can get it out globally. Yeah, I think that's that's a big big change hmm. over the last five ten years. Are you excited though by I would say the agile shifts that we're seeing in the game industry, where like you said, we're kind of away from the risk of the five year dev cycle, kind of going down to three. And as Brandon has said, like you guys are sensing these trends. What's, I guess, what's the general level of excitement, I guess, over where you are right now and what you see currently in the game industry, right? Like Fortnite is making a billion dollars by itself, getting 300 million a month. You know, it's got to be positive signs. How are you guys feeling, I guess, as investors seeing all this kind of news? I mean, uh, the industry is growing a lot. Mm. And the fantastic thing about game studios is that if you're successful, you can have high growth and high mm. profitability at the same time. Mm-hmm. If you do the right business decisions. Yeah. And I mean, Fortnite for me is, is the first title we actually see some of the AAA studios saying, you know, uh, they're not playing our game because people are playing Fortnite. Yeah. I think it's a really, yeah. u- really unique point in timing having, uh, you know, this really, really mainstream title. But what it does, I think it, it's a lot more, for example, a girls playing Fortnite. Mm-hmm. So it's really opening up uh, the interest for a wider audience. Uh, but we think that people will spend more time in with digital brands and digital entertainment. And they will spend more time on all platforms. I mean, mobile, uh, console, PC, and, and whatever platform there will be in the future. Uh, so uh, we, we think it's just exciting to see the companies who can actually come up with three, four, five great titles in a row. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a one-trick pony, and and it's you know it's really creative people, mm-hmm. but the ideal company have a great balance. You have creative people, who who also take you know planned financial risk. Yeah. So are you guys uh how involved are you guys with the companies that you invest in, uh, when it comes to 
every year. Like, do you guys get to see the full sleuth of things that they're planning during the quarterly meetings? Is that where most of the information and exchange happen? Or is there more, uh, yeah. more, more interaction? Yeah, how hands-on do you guys get with uh, dealing with the companies that you guys work with? Uh, we typically meet the companies maybe between four and ten times a year. Okay. It depends on, on you know, wh- wh- what they're doing. Uh, but, I mean, ideally, we, we meet a, a company after every quarterly report. That's the most uh, common thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try just to, um, we don't go into to details, technology plans. And obviously, if you're a public company, you can't disclose what you're working on in the future. Mm-hmm. But what we try to achieve in these meetings is just to understand, you know, what are you guys doing and, and what's your plan for this year and next five years? And uh, we want to discuss the biggest projects and understand, you know, how they're thinking. Um, you know, it's, it's a big difference between making a project where we spent maybe $5 million and 20. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, we just try to, to understand the companies and understand where they're putting their, their time and effort, basically. Okay. So as far as uh, companies that you guys do work with, uh, I'm imagining the courtship isn't just, hey, we like your games, document signed. I guess, how long on average would you say your process of, you know, getting to know the company, making offers, checking out books, references, and then signing a deal to bring them under the flagship of, you know, your bank? Uh, I guess, what's that kind of initial process like for bringing a new group of developers onto, under your umbrella? Uh, I mean, since, since we mostly, uh, we almost only invest in public companies who are on the stock exchange. Ah, okay. I see, I mean, I see where this is going. They, they've done a lot of preparatory work. I mean, they have a lot mm-hmm. of material. Usually there's been a bank who's done a due diligence process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there, I mean, we usually have all the information we need mm-hmm. and it's usually a company who's, who's looked over their books, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so our, I mean, uh, get go can be between one to three weeks. Oh, sometimes yeah. we meet the company five times. Sometimes we meet them one time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, it really depends uh, as of today, I think uh, five years ago, we found companies that, that we never heard about and we invested in them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, uh, I mean, these days, uh, we know of most of the companies. I mean, it's just not yeah. something just doesn't pop out of, of thin air. And so knowing that you guys are, you know, kind of preferred balance towards publicly traded or vastly publicly known companies, does a private development company as long as they meet like the credentials, which might be hard to have had three successful games and you guys don't know about them, but just hypothetically here, uh, private companies that at least meet all the metrics you're looking for, do they still have a shot in uh, joining your flagship? Yeah, we, we can invest in them up to a year before IPO. So if they okay. want to do pre, pre-IPO deal where they need funds to prepare the company for an IPO, I mean, then we can get involved, but that, that's really uh, our limit. Okay, fair enough. But, but what we see as of today, I mean, the, the stock market is definitely not for everyone. Mm-hmm. But, but for, if you have built a successful company and you have created something you want to last the next, not five years, but 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. we, I think it's a great corporate governance model. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Valve or Steam. 
Mm-hmm. If you have a great founder so, who founded a great company, how do you make sure that that company is around in 50 years' time? I think the best platform for them would actually be the stock market. Mm-hmm. I mean, you IPO the company. You can even create the foundation owns 51% of, of the votes. Mm-hmm. You can have your, your biggest fans and your whole community to be actually invested in the company. Mm-hmm. And the good, I mean, the, the pain of being a public company is that you have a lot of people asking tough questions. But that is the right governance, mo- governance model to make sure that you are relevant in 15, 20, 25 years' time. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's always a bigger risk to, to, to be a pr- private company over a 25-year cycle. Because then, you know, who do you have that's, you know, looking over your shoulder and making sure you're, you're putting your energy and effort on the right things? Mm-hmm. So we think that for, for many of the successful companies, especially in some other industries besides gaming, a lot of the successful companies founded 30, 40 years ago, they can thank the, the, the stock market that they are still relevant to today. Damn, and, uh, there goes my shot. <laughs> my company's not public. <laughs> I mean, so there's a lot of private investment. I mean, Kickstarter, naming one, uh, has been dying down, right? I feel like it it isn't making as much waves as it once was. And this is more like a perspective. I want to kind of see what your thoughts are on on that. Um, How how individuals are trying to help with a project they're passionate about, and uh, if 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 you see any future in that, um, in that type of growth as, as a person who does this professionally? I, I think that the only example we have is actually Frontier. Because uh, mm-hmm. they did a Kickstarter for the title Lead Dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that was in the early days when we're... So for them, it worked at that point in time. But I think uh, that is getting tougher. What's Sorry. starting to happen in Sweden now is that you have one, two, three, four, five very successful entrepreneurs who made a lot of money in gaming, mm-hmm. who've actually started to invest in, in other game studios themselves. Mm-hmm. And that we find very, very attractive because then you get an ecosystem when the guy who's funding you is not this odd person from the bank who knows nothing about the industry. Yeah. The ideal thing is when you have some wealthy entrepreneurs who made their own money in gaming, when they reinvest their proceeds, that's the best investor mm. for the first maybe one, two, three, four years of the company's life cycle. Mm. But, but then when you get to the point where, where maybe that, that's maybe too small and you need to accelerate and you need to grow, I think uh, then it's more attractive to maybe get an institution aboard who mm. understands the industry. But we always want to be invested in companies where we have investors of, of flesh and blood on our side. Mm-hmm. Because we, we think that companies who are institutionally owned are not as attractive because they just make more mistakes. If you can uh, disclose, and if you can't, you don't have to say anything, but uh, of the investments that you guys have made that are publicly known, which one was like the most surprising because of its success. Not necessarily that you didn't expect it to do well, but that even with the expectations you guys had set, you know, you saw results that far exceeded what you were hoping for. I think I, I can give a, a couple of different examples. And the, okay. the first example would be, be Starbreeze. 
because oh, yeah. uh, we invested right after they launched Payday 2. Mm. And for us, that was the first real example of what a small company can do if you have a digital distribution. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Payday, title, Payday 2 is now five, five, almost six years old, I think. And still, I mean, you're saying, seeing it at top 10 on mm. Steam in terms of, of players. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that just showed us and, and illustrated what you can do with, with, with the digital distribution and expansions. You can keep a brand alive for a lot longer period, and you can mm. also pivot the brand towards your community. So I think Starbreeze was probably the investment we made where we, we learned the most about the industry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, Paradox for us is, is still maybe the most valuable example, which has, you know, very diverse portfolio, more than 100 titles on Steam above $5. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have so much growth even from the old titles these days. And they're in a very comfortable situation because they have a big net cash position. They're making money on their back catalog, which means that they can really focus on making great games. They don't have to push out the title to save the quarterly one reports. They just focus on making great games and they're in that situation just because they have this profitable growth journey. You know, it's not three different companies, the license holder, another guy being stressed and saying, now we have to go and, and release this title. I mean, I think they really focus on, the, on their community. Mm-hmm. And then um, the third example where we have been really surprised, I think, is actually THQ Nordic. Oh, yeah. Thank and they've you. been buying, buying a lot of studios. Yeah. And they've been doing that thanks to the stock market. And, so, and I think Lars Vingefors is a fantastic entrepreneur. And he's one of the few people, I think, in the gaming industry who's really understood how to play the stock market in a, in a smart way. Mm-hmm. Because they've treated the stock market as the best growth platform there is. I mean, taking in money and then reinvesting that in really attractive projects and you know, investing in studios where he has had maybe three, four, five-year-old publishing relationship, so he knows what he's buying. You know, it's not some M&A broker who's just uh, you know signing uh, signing this prospectus. Um, so, so they've really shown what you can do in the public markets as a mid-sized gaming company. All right, guys, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Hey guys, uh, while we've got your attention taking this break from the podcast, we got to do the official stuff and tell you about our main website, GameDevOnChain.com. You already know you can find our podcast on SoundCloud, so you're already listening to us there, but we have a special community of individuals who is holding down the subject matter after the podcast, having their own show and discussions amongst each other in our Discord channel. Brandon, please tell the folks where that link is because i forgot <laughs> <laughs> well it's www.gamedevonchain.com the discord link is right there as well yeah. as other resources so it's a great way to get uh involved with the community after listening to the podcast get more info talk to other listeners mm-hmm. it's uh, also a great place to go to the website to sign up to our newsletter this is a monthly newsletter to all our listeners and past guests to kind of collect resources right mm-hmm. highlight some things that we talk about throughout our all our episodes during that month and kind of give the 
a chance for you guys to follow up with the links mm-hmm. and things that are mentioned throughout the episode. It's a really fun way to further connect with us. We are actually planning something really cool. It's called like a fan dedicated website, right? So uh, in our Discord, we were asking a lot of people to send their phone number. Yes, we're going to do a live call. And once we have your email, we're going to blast you exactly the window of when we're going to call. So we're going to call you up. You're going to ask us a question. We're going to answer it live, have a little conversation. Mm. It's going to be a new segment that we're testing. So if you want to be involved with that, Send your info at info at gamedevunchained.com. Again, you can find all this on the website if you don't remember. And uh, it should be fun. This is a great way for us to talk to you guys directly Mm. with voice and all. And it's going to be recorded live and everything. It's going to be a fun new segment. So get involved. Speaking of getting involved, for anyone who wants to actually see us move this podcast needle a little bit forward you know we have our patreon website where through the generosity of your own heart not because we are asking uh you are more than welcome to become a contributor financially and help us buy snacks for the people who keep the lights on uh you know our towel boys and the the leaf frond fanners that we they got to get paid man right our next big goal for Patreon is to go to these conferences that are happening around yeah. the world. It's a great way. In all way. honesty, yeah. In all honesty, yeah, because it's, again, it's a great way to meet you guys live. We have listeners internationally, right? A lot of mm-hmm. people that we would love to meet. So this is a great way for us to send us over to Gamescom, send us over to E3, send us over to GDC, and have mixers one day, right? That is sure. our dream. So, uh Finance our dream. (laughs) Out of the goodness of your own heart, of course. uh, Yeah. But, you know, in the event that you need incentives, if you look at the tiers, you'll see the things that we're going to be offering, the exclusive content that you can find by being a different level supporter. So at least it should hopefully be mutually beneficial. Here's the free episode of the podcast. Well, I do want to say as a fan, thank you for getting involved with THQ Nordic because we're getting uh, Darksiders 3 coming out pretty soon. Get that sequel all well. That's the third one in the trilogy. I don't know if we'll see the fourth, but happy we see the third. So awesome! No, I think it's uh, Dark Side is a it's a re- really exciting title. Yeah. And um, if you look at the history of THQ Nordic, historically they've done more of asset care projects, mm-hmm. where it's just been you know like a revamp. But but now they're focusing a lot more on actually uh, doing new titles on their biggest uh, brands. And Darksiders is a first example. So I think that's a, it's important to them that that's a successful title mm. that's, because that will really be a comfort for them that they can put more energy on, on old IP that's really loved by the fans. Yeah. And uh, do you find yourself, uh, sorry, as a, a gamer as well, and you enjoy a lot of the products that you guys put out, or do you find maybe you're really heavy on the business end and excited to be working with these projects? I guess where does your love for video games fall on a personal level? I mean, I have always been gaming to some extent. Uh, I can't say that I play a lot these days. Yeah. I usually, if we have a company that's releasing a major title, I will spend maybe five, ten hours just to understand the title and get my personal view on it. 
Mm. The only title I've been playing a lot this year is actually PUBG. So I checked my yeah. Steam account today and I logged 250 hours this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but that, that's, that's really the only uh, game I played this year. Um, I, I don't play 10, 15 different games. You know, I, I play maybe a couple of titles. And sometimes if, if you have, for example, Paradox releasing a title, it's better for us to maybe watch some streams on it because mm. it takes, you know, five, 10 hours to understand the game and have a fun, fun time. So, so um, I think we try to understand the companies on a pro- product level. We don't just do, you know, the thematic analysis, say that digital brands are going to grow and, you know, mm. uh, off you go. We, yes. we try to dissect the companies on, on a title level, uh, but we're not going to play all the titles. Um, so, so, so besides uh, PUBG, I mean, I always, if I get a cold and I have to stay home from work, I always play Civilization. Uh, uh, I thought that's again, what I heard. The, 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 I mean, then again, for me, if, if I, if I want to pick up a strategy g- game, I mean, my mental switching cost is actually quite high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I will typically pay, pick up a, you know, an old game or, or maybe buy a new game in that uh, same uh, franchise. That makes sense. So obviously you guys have all, a lot of these data. You're looking at these companies, the products they have. Um, you know, you guys come in when they're uh, maybe midlife or, or, you know, when they're already proving success. But the companies that you invest in that does the extra mile like Starbreeze who are able to pivot and, and, and evolve with the growth and adapt. Are you, are you guys able to pinpoint, you know, does it come down to the type of uh, leadership? Yeah, so, so a lot of the companies, I mean, inherently they are very creative. I think the common denominator is that they always have one or two great entrepreneurs yeah. who has one foot in, in gaming and one foot in understanding business. Mm. Um, and I think that sometimes it's one individual, sometimes it's a small group of individuals, but I think you always have to strike that great balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, end of the day, I mean, you have to generate revenue to, to make games. Um, and you're always going to have some odd success story of someone sitting in a basement and making a small indie title that's very, very popular. But 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 end of the day, uh, if we want to be involved in the companies, they, they have to understand both. Right. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, uh, just do loot boxes and then put Darth Vader. I mean, you don't have to be super aggressive on monetization yeah. just because you're a great business person. Mm-hmm. It's more about taking calculated risks and building the company in at the right pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems like the ethical way to do it, man. I'm glad that you brought up the Darth Vader reference. Uh, you'd probably be a good person to ask. But, you know, in general, it seems like the game industry is making a shift towards games as a service, uh, you know, smaller microtransactions, freemium products that offer you a initial download but support it through either, you know, quarterly content, updates, patches, things like that. Um, how do you feel about the industry shift towards these different payment models, even for the big titles, you know what I mean? Where maybe 12 years ago, the $60 game was the $60 game. 
and we started to see the introduction of plus content every three months, you know? And now it's just kind of all over the place. Every every model of payment for a game is working, except for $60 titles I feel like are dying down. So how do you feel about pricing models in the game industry right now? I, I, I think I have a mixed feeling. Yeah. Uh, I think over time, uh, if I'm going to inv- be involved personally in, in a brand I love, I would like to see a lot of expansions on it. I, th- I think yeah. just that's the right way to, to entertain the uh, consumer. Same. Yeah. I, but I think as well, I mean, this is a global industry and, and gamers can be quite picky. Mm-hmm. So you will always, I think, strike a good balance between monetization and, and, and content. I think that gamers are very informed buyers. I mean, it's not like going to your electronics store and the salesperson can tell you whatever and you just pick up a product. I mean, people, there's so many reviews, there's so many streamers, people are really knowledgeable. At, they're very rational where, where they spend their money. I mean, just look at the data from Steam on, in terms of if you like a title, you think it's a bit expensive, you may wait for the first sale and then you buy it at you know, 25% discount or, or whatever. So I think that the $60 model is going away. I think that the two prevailing models will be freemium, mm-hmm. like Fortnite, which is always going to be the, the mass market model. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's going to be $25, $30 base game with, with expansions. Mm-hmm. And you have to make a great game because otherwise people don't buy expansions. Mm-hmm. And you have to make great expansions. I, th- I think those are the two prevailing uh, models. And, uh, I mean, those people who love gaming and they love to play games still, if you compare it to any other thing, I mean, going to a restaurant or going to a movie, I mean, your, your per hour entertainment cost is, is as long as trying to do what they're doing. Yeah. Um, actually now we have a Finnish company, Rovio making Angry Birds. Mm. They're trying to launch a big subscription platform for mobile gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, you're oh, actually, always going to have you're always going to have subscriptions you're always going to have bundles um, and uh, end of the day I mean the payment models that are successful it just it, it just hinges on what, what consumers are willing to pay for um, so so we've been talking about like a lot of the triple A side and the mobile side is like part of the same species but it's a whole different breed and you're mentioning Rovio um, when it comes to mobile companies like Rovio or any other companies that you guys invest in, in the mobile space, what, what are the key differences are you seeing, if there are any at all, in, in their the, way they operate things for, for growth? The, the big, biggest difference between a mobile company and a PC or console company is that they have to spend a lot more on user acquisition. It's a more mathematical model. Uh, you measure a lot more. You do a lot more iterations. And, um, and the divider there is which companies can actually scale profitably. Mm-hmm. And that's proven to be very tough. And if you see any trend change there is that uh, scaling has become much more tougher, especially in casual over the last 24 months. I mean, mm-hmm. Facebook advertising is getting more expensive. Uh, Google has changed some of the UX on the App Store, which has not been great for the casual genre. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's the biggest difference between mobile and, and PC. And then maybe over time there will be some convergence. I mean, maybe Fortnite is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there, there will be uh, successful mobile companies out there. But it's proven that the companies that we have been involved in, it's actually been much, much more tougher to, to be invested in some of the mobile companies. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about uh, getting our, our game companies funded again. Uh, there was a lot of fun talk there. Uh, I think what would also help the people listening to this podcast is maybe you could kind of walk us through, let's say a company has, you know, been in talks with you guys, but maybe just weren't there yet. You know, were there any common mistakes or common reasons why your company will say no to working with a game company or bringing them under the portfolio? Are there like the top three things that, oh, they did this wrong or they had this PR disaster or they, you know, they do X, Y, and Z. And so we usually distance ourselves from companies like that. Uh, I think um, end of the day, you have to, if, if you want to be in the public market, you have to run the company very professionally. Mm-hmm. And if you're a studio with three, 30 people who just uh, been doing the same title for the last 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, and really, yeah, you're not really ready to take the <laughs> next step and, and grow yeah. the company. I think that would be one thing that, that would make it a bit tough for us. Okay. And the other aspect is really if you're a tiny company, you're 5, 10 employees, you've not really released your first title, uh, you're super excited about what you're doing. But for us, it's just way too risky. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the other thing that we've seen in some situations where, it's, you know, this company is just not for us. Gotcha. Um, but, but, but when we do meet companies and we end up not investing, I think still we always try to give them good feedback. Uh, we always try to, to point them in the right direction. Um, they learn something from meeting us. We always learn something from meeting them. And it's always fun to meet creative people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so even those meetings, I think, are actually quite exciting too. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think the industry is maturing a bit. And I think it's becoming more and more evident to people what model works and which models don't work. So I think maybe five years ago, it was more tricky to understand the, the pathway. I think now the pathway is more clear to, mm-hmm. to a lot of talented people in the industry. Yeah. Fair enough. So obviously you guys are looking at companies that, that has somewhat of a proven track record that has like a clear path of where they want to be and, um, you know, diverse portfolio of where they want to take things. And again, would love your perspective on VR is not obviously ready, right? There, there's no real companies out there that are just killing it at VR. It's the VR, very risky. It's very risky. Yeah. How do you feel about that whole sector? Is it is it just like what it was mobile in the early years where it's just like you see potential, but it's not there yet? And then maybe down the line you can start seeing. Like if, if not, like what kind of changes do you feel that it needs to do? I think, I mean, the, the company everyone is always talking about this magic leap and how fantastic they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, for me personally, if I look at the Steam numbers on any VR title, VR is super niche. Mm-hmm. I don't think there will be, uh, you know, a big market for Oculus or HTC Vive in the home. 
I don't think it's going to be a huge thing. I think the smart thing that, that the games developers are doing is one good example is actually Payday 2. I think it makes sense to do a VR port if you have a fun game. But trying to build a fun VR game, I think, is impossible. So if we meet a small VR studio, we will always say that, you know, this is not for us. Uh, I think that people are very naive. There were a lot of projects started two, three years ago when HTC and Oculus were, you know, all over the news and people were overexcited. Mm. So I, I, I just don't think that uh, it makes sense to build a original VR game. Mm. On the other hand, I think a lot of the great titles out there on Steam, it would make financial sense to do a VR porting for some titles. Uh, I think a great example is actually uh, Frontier uh, with, with their uh, space game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, th- that just makes sense. And the same thing for, for Payday. But I think that making you know, $10 million budget only for VR, I mean, that model is not going to work the next five years. Yeah. So, so the, some of the most exciting things I've seen in VR is, is location-based entertainment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, there's a lot of innovation going on, so it's hard to understand exactly, ex- exactly what will happen next couple of years. But I think The Void is one good example in the U.S. I mean, uh, the, the Star Wars title they have is, is quite fun. Mm-hmm. The other ex- example is actually Starbreeze, uh, who... who who've started the world's biggest location-based uh, VR park in Dubai. Mm. Uh, I went there for three days to try out everything. And mm, I nice. think that uh, over time, if you go to any entertainment part, park, they will have a uh, VR section. Um, so I think that the, the, the big use for VR is going to, one, be business-to-business or industrial applications, and two, location-based entertainment. I think that those are the two big use areas. And then over time, maybe there will be Magic Leap or there will mm. be this fantastic Google headset where you're going to go around and live your life, life like Pokemon Go 24-7, you know? But that's impossible to, to uh, really get your hands on uh, right now. I think that's a couple of years down the road. I, I do agree. Like I feel like the... Um... The growth for VR or the uh, profitability for VR will be most likely non-game applications, right? Like, uh, of course, location-based, you're still playing a game, but it's like kind of replacing arcades or the accessibility is is more uh, easier. It's much easier to consumers, right? So if you lower that bar uh, for experiences such as that or the movie industry is starting to get into it, to use VR for, for other, like, for, for other uses. And, and, you know, the artists out there who are expressing art through VR, like that's getting more and more popular. But yeah. I do agree. Like it's, it's probably not going to be like a game that kind of breaks the mode where everyone's going out there to buy $800. Sets. <laughs> so I, in, I in think that, that case, um, if that sector does grow, is that something that you guys will look into from, from a non game focus uh, application of VR. We, we will stay curious. Uh, we will meet any VR company who's doing any business application. I mean, we have to be uh, uh, very open-minded if we invest in tech. Uh, I think that over time, the best way to experience a digital world would obviously be in a VR, AR setting. Mm-hmm. 
And, and what would you need for that? I mean, uh, if you discuss with Frontier, David Braben, the CEO, I mean, uh, his calculations say that when you have a 16K headset, you can't really distinguish virtual reality from real reality. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting on the bus on your way to, to work, and you don't even know if you're wearing your headset or not, I mean, obviously, that will open up a great possibility for interactive entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, and that will happen. And, and given how much money and time people are spending in buying, you know, skins and, and living their lives in both real and digital worlds, I mean, the extension of that is, is going to be VR and AR over time. I mean, no doubt. But, but, the, but the killer app, you don't know if it's going to be a game. And, and you don't know what, what, what the killer device will be either. But I think that, that the, um, the telltale for where that is happening or how that's evolving is probably going to be location-based entertainment. Because that's really when you can get really expensive hardware and, and really play with your, uh, with your community and doing very innovative things. I think that's going to be hard to do in a... A six hundred dollar uh, head-mounted display anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so it it will happen, uh, and uh, who knows if we find the, the right company doing the right thing, we we could be involved. Uh, but but I think it's 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 really tricky, and a, a lot of the pitches that we see are I think are a little bit naive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you, I I feel like I align a lot with what you're saying right now, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway because I I've never had the opportunity to ask it. But you know, whenever I read like GameIndustry.biz or Gamma Sutra, for the last three years, I'm seeing like, oh, this company secures eight million dollars in seed funding for VR. This company has secured three million dollars. This company has secured eight million dollars, six million dollars. Like I'm seeing these articles with the same headline where venture yep. capitalists are going into VR and investing in these companies. Mm-hmm. Now, from your perspective in the bank, does that ever inspire you to like, hey, maybe we're, you know, like, do you get excited to like want to pursue? Do you still hold fast? And if so, you know, like, I guess, what's it like making those decisions when you're seeing other partners or competitors like doubling down, tripling down on VR for yep. like a, a three-year period? Hmm. I think history tells us that every, every single time we got excited to pursue something, we, uh, uh, end of the day, lost money. <laughs> so so uh, we have to try to be disciplined. Uh, yeah. I think one risk for us is that you're seeing a lot more venture cap going in and trying to buy games developers. I think that mm-hmm. that is a bigger threat, that people get overexcited about valuations, and that people get naive on how hard it's actually it is to make a game. And that it is maybe one out of three games being successful. And, and what if valuations say that each and every game studio have to make, you know, 100% of the titles have to be, you know, successes to, to live up to your valuation. Um, but, but I think that uh, it's like any industry that becomes hot. You saw that in clean tech 10 years ago. Mm. That you have a boom and then you have all these journalists who get involved and those journalists make huge mistakes. And, and that's what happened in the VR. And mm-hmm. there's going to be a couple of those projects who are successful. The thing is, every single investment you look at and the price tags you mentioned, that's pricing that maybe 50% of the companies and, and projects are successful. And I think in reality, it's going to be 1%. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, uh, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. 
Uh, it was the same thing in mobile. I mean, after Supercell got acquired by Chinese for this ridiculous amount, yeah. <laughs> there was you know, it, 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 it was a hundred startups in Helsinki in Finland <laughs> who who got funded at, at at wrong valuation multiples as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and still to this day, that means that companies coming to the public market in mobile gaming in Finland, they they have a, a premium just because of that historic happening. Uh, and that's proven to be, to be uh, you know, uh, limiting factors. Mm. Has there been any companies that you guys passed that exceeded expectations? Don't have to be specific, but just kind yeah. of maybe an idea. Um, for us, if we find a company and the, and the share price is up a lot the last year, and the valuation is really, really high, I mean... Sometimes we we made the mistake not to get involved um, because we think just valuation was too expensive. But but obviously we we missed a, a couple of interesting things last two three years. Definitely, uh, we, we're always gonna miss great deals. I mean that's that's part of what we do. Mm-hmm. It is uh, sometimes very frustrating, um, but but. Um, you can't spend too much time thinking about the missed opportunities. I mean, it's just not the right uh, mental process. Right. But um, o- overall, I mean, uh, if we come in, we want to be very long-term. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be long-term in a company, we can just not bet the farm on a turnaround or something that might be good. And we, we really try to avoid the hope companies Mm. And avoid the companies who are not making any revenue today and say, yeah, we're perhaps going to make money in five years' time. Um, so so that's, that's really the approach we try to take. So about those mistakes, I mean, those companies that, <laughs> that you passed on, um, were there strategies that were laid out that you weren't sure about that was unique to, to – uh, that is uh, – uh, didn't have the foresight that you guys had about it anything that they did differently or was it just one of those things just too early for us to kind of bet the farm like you put it, 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 it most of them have, they've just been too early and they've been overexcited and then and then things have not really happened oh sorry yeah there's some people coming <laughs> tell them we said hello <laughs> no no but um i, I think they um when we've said no, it's often been that they've been too early mm-hmm. in their in their company life cycle, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes they've been successful, and sometimes they've been naive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you're if you're an entrepreneur, you're starting something, you always have to be super excited about what you're doing, right? right? right. Because otherwise, the the probability of success is zero. Mm-hmm. So your job is to be overexcited. Um, but but um, we're, we're always going to miss opportunities. Um, uh, but we just have to hope that we, we, we find enough companies. Right. Well, is there any sort of point where you feel like you guys will hit equilibrium or is it just constant growth, five to 10% in each company and keep on going? You, is there an end goal? You know what I mean? Like, or, I mean, it might be a silly question because obviously if you're making money, you probably want to keep making money, but no, you know, but just um, we try to be a, a long term. The good mm-hmm. thing with the equity fund is that it's, it's evergreen. You know, we mm-hmm. don't have a stop date like a venture cap fund. Gotcha. So we, we don't have any. We don't have to have an exit plan. So when we find the right company, 
time is working for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they are profitable and if they do grow, uh, we think that the most stupid thing we can do, and history has shown to us that if we are uh, too short term and we sell something just because it's 25% overvalued, uh, five years down the road, that company may be, you know, double and triple and went up 10 times. So we, we really try to take a very long-term perspective. And then things are always going to change over a course of time. And you're always going to come to a situation when maybe the company is too big for us to be invested in. Because, I mean, we focus on smaller companies. We think that yeah. over time, smaller companies will always be more successful than big companies. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, But, but in, in the gaming so far... We've, we've not really sold any um, company or position yet just because of, of the size factor. Oh, that answers my question. Oh, man, check this out. Uh, oh. So I just glanced down at the clock. We've actually been podcasting for just about an hour. And so, yep. Carl, I have to congratulate you. You made it all the way through the end. Uh, you were playing my secret game. So... To thank you for being part of our podcast, Brandon and I are going to take a step back from the microphone and give you an opportunity to talk directly to our audience to promote, shout out, or raise awareness for something that you're involved in, uh, something that you know you just want to you know advertise or even just tell people about that you uh, think needs a little bit more spotlight. So, without further ado, sir, the floor is yours. Yeah, I think I would. Uh, uh, I would make a shout out for. Just look at all the gaming companies that went to the, to the public exchange have been successful. Mm -hmm. I, I think just I just want to say that I think that the stock market is not for everyone, mm -hmm. but I think it's a great platform for gaming companies. I think it's it's great to be public if you're working with consumer brands, and uh, I think that's really the shout out um, that what, if you're a successful entrepreneur, why why sell your company and make a great exit and, and get money? I think it's better to IPO your company. If you're bored of being the CEO, you can go up and join the board of directors. Mm -hmm. If you get even tired of being on the board of directors, you can sell half of your holding and, and stay as a passive investor in the company. But I just think that that's, it's a great platform. And uh, take Steam or Valve, for example. I mean, my shout out would be, you know, if you have been around for this many years and you have been so successful at building the biggest store globally for games, and, and giving, building a fantastic gaming company, mm -hmm. I think that the best platform to preserve that, that company for 50 years down the road for, for the community mm -hmm. would actually be to IPO and create a foundation that owns 51% of, of the votes. And, uh, and that way, your biggest fans could actually be invested in the company. I think that, that would be a very bright future. And then maybe the same goes for Epic and Bluehole. Yeah, I just think that um, being a public company, I think it's it's great, great long term, great long term corporate governance model. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. To make the money and to do well, if you're a great entrepreneur, go public, man. I agree 100%. Let us make some of that money with you. <laughs> so... All right, uh, Reddit fam, Mr. Carl, I'm going to say goodnight because the time is right. And I'm Larry Charles. Did it in reverse this time. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. See you guys next week. 
you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.